This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Today we have a really interesting conversation, I believe, on something that is, you know, it has become somewhat distant in terms of the actual humans on the ground or the actual work that takes place, and that is caring for refugees. And long after the news media moves on from a particular topic, a particular travesty in the world, there are, quite frankly, endless human beings who have suffered the consequences of, be it war or other action that's taken place, that are in great need of medical attention. And our guest today is one of the human beings that is on the ground that has made time through volunteer effort to actually do the work to care for those refugees who have been oftentimes left behind. And uh, Doc, thanks so much for making the time. I don't know if you want to sort of set it up a little bit of an intro and your background and, and connection to Rhode Island. Sure, Bill. Thank you for having me on on the show. Um, my name is Abrar Qureshi. I'm uh, chair of the Department of Dermatology here at Rhode Island Hospital in Brown University. And um, you might be wondering already why a dermatologist is going out into the field to take care of people who might be displaced from natural disaster or from war. Why is it? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, uh, Bill, you alluded to earlier, when people are displaced because of either uh, war, other, you know, causes of strife, could be an economic disaster, could be a natural disaster, those displaced people suddenly are looking for places to go, they're looking for shelter, for food, healthcare, um, and exactly what you said happens, you know, displacement occurs, it can be an acute event, there's a lot of media attention, as that attention fades away within, you know, days to weeks to months, uh, the displaced people are still displaced and their needs continue to grow uh, in many facets of life uh, that we normally take for granted, you know, at home. We wake up in the morning, we have running water, bathroom to go to, we have food available. If someone's sick, we can get healthcare access for most of most people, you know, let's say in the state of Rhode Island, for example. Um, but those things aren't naturally available to people who are displaced. And that has, a, has an impact on their life, their quality of life, how they think, what they do. And so um, as a dermatologist, what I've learned is people displaced for, let's say, six months or more, even up to a year or more, start getting into issues with the needs of chronically displaced people. Um, if you notice, I'm using the term displaced and not refugees. That's the, so the newer term that the United Nations High Commission for Refugees uses, the International Organization for Migration uses. Um, the National Medical Corps uses, it really alludes to people who are displaced rather than alluding to the fact that they're refugees, although they're synonymous terms. Is that because of, is that just sort of a, um, you know, I guess I'll ask what's the reasoning behind that? It, it, it makes sense just on the surface, but is there more depth to that, that sort of change in vocabulary? Well, you know, not everybody who's displaced necessarily is a refugee. Sometimes when they're displaced, they do have the resources to support themselves. They're displaced sort of temporarily. Also, in some ways, it's more of a polite term because, you know, you're you're displaced because of a reason. So there's a rationale for why you got displaced, not that you are intending to be a refugee. And so there's an external element that's not in your control. Um, the way, other way, another way to answer it actually is, uh, it's fascinating when they first trained us. I first went out there in 2016. This is the work that we started doing in in, in Jordanian refugee camps right on the Syrian border. Um, the the easiest but the most profound training I've ever had in any medical mission. They asked us a question, 
and they asked us to sit and ponder for five minutes. Uh, the question was, <clears throat> and I think this is last year, displaced question, um, displaced versus refugee person question uh, appropriately. The question was, if you had 15 to 20 minutes to gather everything you own or everything that you possibly carry on your own person and depart your home and possibly never come back to your home ever again, what would you take with you? Um, it's a pretty, very profound question because when you're displaced and it's an emergency, there's war, there's a natural disaster coming, there's an earthquake coming, there's a, a flood coming, uh, there's a hurricane coming, you know, you have to leave and you have to leave very, very fast. And the question is, what will you carry with you apart from, of course, you know, family members going with you, maybe pets, maybe medicines. Um, and so when people are displaced, they have, they have literally minutes to think about things before they run. Such a profound question that I think so many people should ask themselves that would help formulate empathy and understanding of of the many crises around the globe, whether you're talking in Middle East, West Asia, whether you're talking about the global South as a whole, particularly South America, when we talk about the quote-unquote border crisis. I mean, these are, as you said, it's a simple question, but it's such a profound question, and it shows the... Um, just the intensity of a moment as someone goes from not being displaced to being displaced. It's such a, it's such a, a singular moment in a per person's life. And to be able to add that, you know, the, none of us came up with the answer in that training session. You know, the most important item you should carry with you is a means to identify who you are. So whether it's a passport, a driver's license, a diploma, a document with a degree on it. Um, and people tend to forget that they want to carry food with them. They want to carry, you know, water. Uh, the other thing I learned was humbly that the heaviest uh, item to carry is water. Water is very, very heavy to carry. And so, if you're on foot, it's difficult. I, you know, it, we've seen disasters in the U.S. Right, natural disasters happening where people have to to flee homes, evacuate you know, rapidly within hours. So again, it just reminds us this can happen to any one of us. It's a very humbling um, realization. That it can happen to any one of us, and we should always be thinking in a, in a preparedness state. When did you first get involved? You mentioned 2016, but w when it when did this this broad um, sphere managing, working with, helping those who are displaced? When did this first start to become something that you were passionate about? Well, you know, there's a lot of need in the U.S. right here in our backyard. So we do a fair amount of work uh, within Rhode Island, uh, Massachusetts. We do a fair amount of work with uh, with uh, individuals who needed care, free care, free clinics, et cetera, um, at least in the, in the healthcare sphere. And again, these are people who are chronically displaced. Might be homeless population. Might be population of people who you know are looking for for shelter, uh, looking for healthcare. They don't have healthcare. Healthcare lapsed because their jobs lapsed, et cetera. Uh, so. Uh, it's been it's been rewarding to to work in those environments because uh, there's tremendous uh, fulfillment. I mean, there's fulfillment on, on our part. There's gratitude on the part of the patients and people coming in for care. Um, and it's amazing how many hands will just come in to help. Sort of this this amazing group of people who will come in and join you and help. Um, and then, of course, I heard about the the war in Syria. And of course, there's a lot of friends, you know, uh, families affected, people we knew. I have no direct connection to that part uh, of, the, of the world. And there's no Syrian family, for example, but I heard about the crises. And so we certainly waited for the acute disaster and, and the acute care to be to be provided. And then as we learned that people are settling into refugee camps, these were camps so that were displaced people were put up uh, in for, uh, led by the United Nations. Um, 
our government certainly is providing a lot of support to, to house these people who are displaced. Um, and then through through basically talking to friends, asking you know, people who are like-minded, who do a lot of similar work in the United States itself, we put together a team of people. And so I was on, on a, my first mission was 2016. It was, uh, it was actually uh, January. Um, it was cold uh, in here. It was cold actually there in the desert uh, of Jordan. Um, and we made our first trip out there. Um, it was done with the Syrian American Medical Society. So they're all U.S. physicians, nurses, and dentists who went along. Um, and we we set up camp and we started working. And it was a very, it was a very emotional, very uh, moving time because people were acutely displaced about a, you know, a few couple of years prior to when we got there. And so we saw a lot of disease. We saw a lot of, um, you know, changes in people's, uh, you know, skin, their status, their mental health. Uh, because they were exposed to the elements. Um, so we certainly began to learn a lot immediately. And then since then, I've been working almost annually in that part of the world, going with the same team of people. So it's built a nice group of people with camaraderie and goodwill. Um, they come from all over the all over the U.S., usually about 60 to 70 Americans who go together. So how many times have you been over to uh, that part of the world? Was, I was able to, I couldn't go the couple of years of COVID, but it's been pretty much every year since then. Wow. Uh, and, and like I said, very rewarding because um, it's been, you know, it's been something where we can actually provide continuity of care. So there are about three or four missions that go every year. So every three to four months. And so we can, we hand patients off to each other, depending on who's going and between specialists and primary care physicians. Uh, there's a lot of dental work that happens there. It's actually kind of fascinating how that happens and a fair amount of mental health support as well. Is there a story that resonates a specific patient of yours that kind of embodies the work that you've done over there or anything you can share of that sort? Yeah, I'll never forget. This is probably first couple of years. Um, there's a woman, she was probably in her 70s. Uh, she came in and she had, she said she had a skin problem. So, of course, she was directed to our clinic. And we were working at the time in, in these uh, trailers that the UNHCR sets up. Uh, they're, they're basically metal containers. You have basically a small uh, space with a curtain behind us. You have an exam room. And so we asked her, you know, and my broken Arabic and I had an interpreter with me, what her skin problem was. It turned out she never had a skin problem. She just wanted human contact. She wanted to talk to somebody. She wanted to have, a, you know, a human being say hello to her, ask her how she was doing. And she was extremely depressed. She'd lost every member of her family. So it's fascinating and then kind of heartbreaking that she didn't have any acute uh, you know, skin disease going on. She didn't have high blood pressure. Her sugars were normal as we tested you know, in our in our mobile clinic there. Um, she didn't seem very malnourished. You know, sometimes we see children who are malnourished over time. Um, but it was the mental anguish she had. She, you know, she told us that you know, she wished she had died in the same um, shelling and attack that destroyed her home, but she was actually away from home um, you know, getting groceries, shopping in the bazaar when it happened, so she got home and was destroyed. And so all she wanted, Bill, was human contact, right? Just talk to somebody, uh, be treated like a human being with respect, right? And uh, uh, be able to communicate back with somebody. That's unbelievable. And, and it, it leads me to my next question, which is what is something that the average United States you know, American, I guess you would say, doesn't understand about displaced folks, particularly in Syria, Jordan, Palestine, this part of the world. What's something that is completely missed 
in terms of the presentation yeah. by the media? Well, first of all, um, it's so we're so proud to be Americans going to these regions because the first thing you see is you know, there are usually signs and posters up um, that tell us which countries are supporting you know certain refugee camps. I can tell you the U.S. flag is always there, so that's number one. We're very proud to be there. They know we're Americans and we're coming to help, and they really appreciate the goodwill. Uh, we bring a lot of supplies with us. We bring um, you know, and we, we we leave a lot of things behind for the local physicians there. So so I have to say that, you know, we're very proud to be there as Americans providing care and people there know who we are. And often, you know, sometimes we see children, the pediatrics sort of population, they'll ask us how it is in America. And is it really like like it's in the movie? So it's great to you know, be able to tell that story. Um, but I think it, it's just important for us to know that um, there's a lot of displacement in the world. You know, we can only do so much to help. But if everybody does a little bit, just a very, very tiny bit, um, it really goes a long, long way because it becomes sort of a grassroots effort. And I'd encourage, I mean, I'd encourage everyone to, you know, find their cause, could be local, could be national, could be international, where you you could give, us you can donate, you know, a few dollars. But if you can do the work yourself, it really creates that, that special sense of, of giving where, um, you see people who you can help and it, it's, it's fulfilling. And I think it would be a great antidote to some of the stresses of life we see on a daily basis here. Also, I think it prepares us, you know, let's say there's a natural disaster in, in our country somewhere, right? We're more prepared to go there and, and, and you know, do preventive work. Um, the other big realization that I personally had working the last few years in this space is that there are unknown consequences of displacement, which I think we're, we are aware of now in, in the U.S. itself as well. So I'm drawing analogies because it's still human populations. They're here and anywhere else in the world. But sad that some of that's happening in the U.S. So, for example, I'll give you an example. Often when we're seeing children in these clinics, in, the, in these refugee camps. So let's say it's a camp, 150 to 200,000 people. And we are uh, manning a particular clinic in that for a week at a time. So we're there for a week. We're seeing patients and lots of people waiting to be seen. Um, and we see pediatrics patients coming in. Often, when I'm seeing a child, they look younger than their stated age because they're they are they're basically chronically malnourished. So over time, when, you know, as we go out there now, although we're not supposed to bring any gifts with us, we'll bring things for children. For example, multivitamins. We'll bring nutritional supplements, etc. Uh, but on average. Maybe I would say more than half the children look younger than what their age is. Wow! Because they just look younger uh, because they're they're chronically chronically malnourished. Of course, that's also a problem because there's poor maternal health, and because of that, we do see a lot of congenital birth defects. We see, we see some inherited defects. We also see a lot of you know traumatic births, and so there's cerebral palsy and other other issues that are related to traumatic or not timely births. And so a lot of pediatric issues in that population. So uh, that could be mirrored here as well, right, in, in our nation. Um, and certainly there are disparities of care here that could be racial or ethnic or or financial, as we know, in, in the U.S. of A itself. So I think it's a lesson learned as we, we as more physicians, as more social, um, so, you know, uh, workers, other people visit these locations, we can bring those lessons learned and apply them here to help our people too. Yeah, that was actually my next question. What's something that you've taken back from your humanitarian mission to your practice here in Rhode Island? 
you know, it, it just makes you aware of, of the need in Rhode Island. So, um, you know, we certainly, we have a, a free clinic in, in the state, right, where we provide dermatology care. Our residents here at Brown, our faculty, a volunteer in that clinic. Uh, if patients need more advanced care, we can identify them. We bring them in. We actually do provide free care to, to a small population of them just so we can take care of their needs. Uh, but also remind us that there are system problems, right? There are system issues we can slowly work on gradually um, to solve in terms of policy, in terms of, you know, healthcare-related uh, support. Uh, the people working with in the displaced world where they're suddenly displaced from the natural disaster or war, those are Herculean events that cause massive population you know, changes and fluxes in, in regions, causing a stress on on, on healthcare and, and nutrition. But you know, we cannot. We're seeing that here. But it's more of a sort of slow plotting process that we can also address. You know, gradually. Um, the the most recent work I've done though was in Turkey post earthquake, and that was very interesting because um, here was, we were working with the Red Cross and the Red Crescent. The Red Crescent is the the partner of the Red Cross in Turkey. And it was fascinating to see what they do. They were, we were doing less healthcare there, learning more about mass feeding campaigns. Where they were feeding one city, they were feeding six hundred thousand people. Bill, every day. I'm sorry, there were two hundred thousand people being fed, six hundred thousand meals every day. So we learned a lot about how the Red Cross and Red Crescent work together to provide nourishing meals to people who are suddenly displaced. They provide clean, potable drinking water. Suddenly, they can they can resurrect a supply chain to an area suffering with natural disaster within 24 hours. Sort of like how FEMA works, right? FEMA is amazing what they do. They can get into a natural disaster area and resurrect a supply chain for food and water within hours. So it's fascinating to see that facet of things. And and as a healthcare provider, uh, in general, as a physician, you know, nutrition is so important, right? Because nutritional problems lead to so many healthcare problems. So I, it's just a reminder that that even in our backyard, we have some of these problems and we should be, you know, uh, just aware of them, ask questions. And if everyone did a little bit, I think we could move mountains. To have the lens that you have into the disparity in the world must be profoundly impacting you personally. And oftentimes we, you know, the anecdotally sometimes we, we think of, Outside of our own sphere, there are obviously problems, be it geopolitical, be it caused by natural disaster, be it caused by anything uh, that are easy to dismiss or easy to distance from our day-to-day lives here. And sometimes or even, you know, you hear the expression, oh, that's a first world problem, but you don't really go a step beyond that. Like you can't, you know, the grocery stores out of your favorite sausage or something like that. What's your message to anybody about the realities of the world we live in? And not necessarily from the standpoint of, well, you should feel bad about it or badly about it, I should say, but just awareness. Yeah, what a great question, Bill. I think the the, the overwhelming feeling of people coming back from a medical mission, like the times we've been on so many times, is this profound sense of humility and gratitude. We're so grateful when we, you know, land back on U.S. soil that, you know, we have all the the bare necessities of life that other people just don't have. Like what we take for granted on a daily basis, people don't have. And um, it just makes us very grateful. So 
we, um, you know, my family would say to me, hey, you're, you're less needy after you come back from a medical mission. You don't ask as many questions, you ask me so many things. Or um, so it, it's fascinating how that, it just changes your overall outlook to life because you can certainly have more. You certainly do more things. Things don't always work perfectly. But it's sort of like, you know, tackling a, a mountain of dishes in your, you know, in your sink. If you start with the first dish, you'll get to the last one. But if you get overwhelmed looking at them, you'll be able to tackle them. So it, it, the, the problems, what I'm trying to say is basically seeing people in a, a display situation where they've lost loved ones, they've lost everything they own. Um, sort of like, you know, when you hear of a tornado in Alabama, you don't skip past that news anymore. You just don't flip to the next news item. You read it. You ask a question, can I do something about it? I call a friend. Do they need me there? Can I take some time off and do something there? You hear about, you know, a hurricane coming, that's in Florida. What's going on there? So you just don't flip to the next piece of news, right? It makes you a little more aware uh, individual because you become more, you know, you become so grateful for what you have. You you do th start thinking and becoming aware of other people's uh, needs in, in their, you know, in, in their situation with, that they're suffering in. Dr. Kreshi, your work is amazing. It's inspiring. And thanks for also serving as an ambassador for Rhode Island when you're on these projects. It's really a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. We are brought to you in part by the University of Rhode Island Online, who are offering a cannabis certificate program. The legalization of recreational cannabis that went into effect last year can open doors for your career. If you are already in the industry or wondering what the best path to break into the cannabis field is, well, the University of Rhode Island has a program to help you become highly competitive in numerous areas of the cannabis industry. Fully accredited by URI's College of Pharmacy, the certificate program is 100% online and can be completed in just two semesters. Learn more at uri.edu slash online slash cannabis or give them a call at 401-874-5280. We're brought to you in part by CCA Health Rhode Island. Commonwealth Care Alliance, or CCA, is a multi-state integrated care system influencing innovative models of complex care nationwide. CCA's Uncommon Care model focuses on sustainable and evidence-based healthcare breakthroughs that improve the health and well-being of people with significant needs and is consistently recognized as one of the best models in the country at identifying and serving traditionally hard-to-reach individuals. CCA is excited to bring Uncommon Care to Rhode Islanders with a range of Medicare Advantage plans. Learn more by visiting CommonwealthCareAlliance.org backslash Rhode Island.